Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word this morning, we do so not out of routine, but out of a confident trust that you still speak by your spirit through your word, that your word is given to us, that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. Lord, you have, there's nothing within your word that is uh, without benefit, that is not profitable and useful. And we pray that the very reason for which you caused Moses to record these events and, and make these notes, that that very purpose might penetrate and change our hearts. Help us to see something more of who you are this morning. Help us to desire a closer and more intimate walk with you. Uh, through the challenges of your word and help us to uh, stand in awe of who you are. Lord, all the reading, preparation, planning, practicing is of no use unless your spirit is within it. We pray that your spirit will work with through me and in all of us, uh, that your word would captivate and change people on both sides of the pulpit. And we ask that you would... Be pleased that we would honour you and that you would be glorified uh, through this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. As a little kid, and let's be honest, also when I grew up, one of my favourite places to go, I grew up in New South Wales, is a place called Jamboree Recreation Park. Has anybody ever been there? Dev has, Dev's familiar with, oh, sorry, you, were, you said you lived down at now at some point, so you're sort of in the ballpark. It's just sort of Wollongong-ish kind of area, but their big slogan was always, where you control the action. Now, one ride in particular, which I always had a lot of fun on, there's this big metal bobsled, it's a kilometre long track down the hill, and the fact that it says you control the action means you sit on this thing, if you push the stick forward, it lifts the little brakes off the track. And if you can do it, you can actually go all the way from the top, all the way to the bottom, flat stick. If you sit at a particular point, we figured it out, you're going to get go faster because it's not likely to, to, to slow it down in any way. You don't need brakes on it. And you can go pretty fast. And you know what? If you don't balance well when you go around the corner, if you do go flat stick the whole way, you come off it. And usually it's a place where people tend to go in summer. So you've got a really hot metal track, you're wearing shorts, and you come off the thing and you go sliding down on metal on your bare skin. I've had many wonderful injuries at that place and I've enjoyed every single one of them. (laughs) But as much as I enjoy this thing, to get to the top, it's at the top of a mountain, you've got to go up a chairlift. Now, people who don't know me, I don't like heights. I've never liked heights, and the older I get, the more silly I get about it. And so I get on this chairlift, you know, not the, you know, the old school ones where your legs are dangling over the side, and it's not really that high up. And the first time, even though I'm loving what I'm about to go do, I, I kind of have a little bit of a panicky moment. And as I progressively do it time and time again, the panic sort of gets less and less and less until eventually it's like that, what were you panicking about? Then I go away, come back a year later, Exact same chairlift, the same one that, that I realised, no, I'm not going to fall off, I'm not going to die. Yet I revert back to the exact same pattern of thinking and worrying about how this is going to happen. It's stupid, isn't it? You have seen that something can be trusted, 
You've seen that there's nothing to worry about, yet how quick we are to forget and revert back to the same patterns of thought. Now, while you might not have the same experience with heights and silly things that are distinctive to Steve, there's something about human nature in that, isn't it? That there are things that we naturally have caution and doubts about. We might even come to a point where we're convinced that silly that we had doubts about them. But how quickly we will find ourselves reverting to the same patterns of thinking that we had beforehand. We see the Israelites doing exactly the same as we go through the book of the Exodus. Forgetting their past, forgetting what they've already seen of their God, how he's displayed his glory and his power to them and his care for them. Already, as far as we've gone so far, like in the beginning of the book, we see there's a, a paranoid and angry Pharaoh who's worried about the number of the Israelites growing and he's trying to do everything to restrict their numbers, whether it be by making them work hard or trying to kill the firstborn male sons. But God had promised to Jacob, he says, don't be afraid to go down into Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. And so they actually flourished during that time. Even in the worst of the situation where they're being described as being treated ruthlessly as slaves, it must be understood in the context of the promises to Abraham back in Genesis 15 when God says, you will be taken into another nation. They will treat you like this, but I will deliver you out of their hands. Things aren't going outside of the plan of God. God chooses Moses, a very reluctant Moses, to be his deliverer. God says, take this staff. He says, I'm going to give you these signs. He goes to the Israelites. The Israelites see the miraculous signs that God has given to Moses and they fall down and worship at the end of Exodus chapter 4. Not because they've seen God's deliverance, but because they believe that God has raised up this deliverer because of the signs that they've seen. Then Moses and Aaron are going before Pharaoh. Let my people go. And God has given him these miraculous signs. And the people have seen them, all the, all the plagues that have happened, turning the river Nile into blood. And then it ended in the, the final plague where the firstborn, every single household of the Egyptian, every single livestock was killed in that one night. And the Israelites spared only by the gracious provision of God with the blood on their doorposts. Then they get out of Egypt. They're being led by God in a way in which they can tangibly see his presence. They've got the the cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night. Then they get up against the Red Sea. The army comes. God, through Moses, splits open the Red Sea and they walk through on dry land and the Egyptians get drowned. The Israelites have seen a fair bit of the mighty hand of God, probably far more than you or I will ever see. But how quickly they forget their God, forget what he has promised and forget his care, protection and his presence with them. Now that being said, we shouldn't say that we haven't seen any signs. Even if the only tangible sign of God's miraculous work is the fact that you have been called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, you have gone from being unrighteous to being righteous in the sight of God, then that in itself is a miracle. We need to reflect and give thanks for that. 
But often we're very quick ourselves to forget things. And I would encourage you, not now, but when you get home, maybe even to stop, take stock, and actually write down some of the ways which you have tangibly seen God's hand at work in your life. You'll be surprised how long that list gets. But sometimes to keep those things first and foremost in our mind helps protect us in the future when we remember on God and his previous faithfulness and how that will apply to the situation we may find face in the future. But where we come to today's passage, they've crossed through the Red Sea. Last week, Samuel uh, spoke about us through the song of praise that, that Moses and Miriam had there where they were praising God for his wonderful deliverance, bringing them through the Red Sea and also for his judgment upon the Israelites. So it's a time of great praise for who their God and his actions, their saving, his care for them. Yet so quickly, three days later, according to verse 22, they're complaining. And this last passage we've read is basically structured by three complaints about their God, saying, God, you're not looking after us. You're not doing your part. Two of them regards to water, which is the first and the third, and in the middle regarding a lack of food. This is only three days later. They say, God, we've got no water. Well, actually, they complain to Moses most of the time, but the complaint is essentially against God. They come to Marah where there is water, but the water is bitter. You can see why they're concerned, aren't they? They think, oh, no, we've got a problem with water. We've got no chance. Do we know anyone who could help with water? Someone who might be able to turn like the Nile, whole river like, into, into blood. One who can part a whole sea. Oh, we've got a problem with water. We're, we're, there's no hope, they think. So they complain to Moses, what shall we drink? Now part of that seems like a fair question to ask because we do need water, don't we? We need liquid. We need to drink something. But what a more correct response might be, rather than saying, God, what are you doing? You've, you've let us down. They have seen how God has provided so sufficiently and abundantly along the way. A more right response would be, God, is, I know your promises. I know you are able. This is my need at this point in time. I will wait for your provision. I know you are good. But rather than proclaiming his goodness, they presume he is far from good. Remember back in the end of chapter 2, they cry out to God because they knew he was the only hope they had. Now they complain to Moses. We could learn a little bit from this ourselves. We could save ourselves a whole lot of frustration by simply going to God first bringing our requests before him, the one who is abundantly able to do more than we ever ask or imagine, and wait patiently for the Lord who provides for his people. But be honest for a moment. How often is that not our first reaction? How often is our first reaction actually go to, to go to another sinful human being who can do nothing about the situation and we complain about it? as though the situation is without hope when we belong to the God who provides abundantly for our needs 
And yes, you do need to know what needs means and clearly define what needs are. We're not so good at that one. And although the people don't cry out to God, Moses does. And God shows him a log or a tree, depending on your translation. But if you want a little bit of biblical insight, trees are made out of wood, so that's, that's, a, that's a fair connection to make. It's not Your two different Bible translations aren't majorly disappointing. And they place that into the water, and the water becomes sweet. Instantly becomes sweet. So the sceptics want to say, oh, this tree, it affects the water in this way. It happens straight away. This is the miraculous work of God who uses his creation in such a way that brings glory to himself. And we see the first of three occasions of a testing occurring in the passage in verses 25 and 26. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to my voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ears to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. God tested them. Interestingly, this is passage on the overall that we're looking at is a passage that's more famously known for the way in which the people tested God, which we'll look at that in, as we get to that point. But what he tested them was their obedience. That whether they would listen to his voice, that whether they would do what is pleasing to him. And the point isn't, isn't that he's trying to find a measure of whether or not he deserves, they deserve what he's doing for them. The point is to show that they didn't. That God graciously provides for people who don't deserve. Specifically, he speaks about commandments and statutes. You think, hang on, that's a little bit, bit early on. Now, the giving of the law doesn't happen until still chapters later. But when we get to Exodus 20, we'll realise that some of the things that are written there actually already seem to exist. You would have noticed if we had the passage read that the Sabbath gets a mention well before it comes up in Exodus chapter 20. But just like the law which had curses for disobedience, so also here God says, if you do not do these things, I will treat you as I do the Egyptians. But they, as they get to Elim, God provides graciously to these grumblers. It wouldn't be a natural response, would it? Here you are, you are provided, you are caring for them, and all they do is grumble. Yet God graciously provides. Says when they get to Elam, there were 12 springs of water where there was literally 12 or if their idea is just to be the picture of how all of the tribes of Israel were abundantly catered for and the 70 trees of shade provided for them. God has provided, he's caring for his people. Maybe now they get it. They've gone through the Red Sea, they need water, they know that God can provide, he cares, he responds. Three months later, we've got a problem. No food. Apparently no food, I should say. Three months or two and a half months roughly, that's not a long time. To put it in a Queensland perspective, that was the first game of State of Origin was roughly around that time ago. And back we go again, back to the good old grumbling. The people of Israel said to them, Would that he have died, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. 
Look at the, the way in which they express it. It's like going back to Egypt. It's like this five-star, pristine buffet. Everything was great. We had all this food, luxurious things. All we could ever want it was just one big, lovely banquet. Look up on TripAdvisor there in Egypt. Yeah, Pharaoh's banquet. This is the number one. Everyone wants to get there. Booked out miles in advance. There's something about complainers that do that, isn't it? To try and exaggerate their point, they exaggerate or glamorise what they think the alternative is. You've been tempted to do that? Sometimes when you're in the middle of a hardship, you almost convince yourself that where you were beforehand was better? Sadly, as a pastor, I've heard so, so many people, when things get difficult in the Christian life, they actually convince themselves they were better before they were a Christian. We tend to see these things with rosier eyes when we're in the middle of the hard times. Remember, God was testing whether they would listen to his voice and do what was right in his his eyes. Again, there's not a cry to God. There's not a cry of, God, you are able, we've seen your protection. How will you provide? We will happily wait upon you for your provision. They complain to Moses. They say, we would rather God kill us in Egypt than we die out here. So this is a big accusation against God. We say, we'd rather God kill us in Egypt. Either way, they say, God's going to kill us. That's how they see the situation. They doubt his promises, protection, provision, presence. They're in hardship. They say, God's given us nothing. We're going to die. We've got no food. What kind of a God would let us be in this situation, they say? Which is very interesting when read in the perspective of Exodus 17.3. And I've... Have I clicked something wrong? Or has it not been on the whole time? Oops, there we go. I'll come back to that. Unless someone wants to find the spot where it's up to. So they're complaining, we're going to die, we've got no food. But when you get Exodus 17.3, that's the next chapter, not far down the track. But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us, our children and our livestock with thirst? They've got livestock with them. They say, God, we've got no food. What are you doing? They've got stakes walking around with them everywhere they go. The problem isn't that they haven't got food. The problem is they don't want to have to work for it. They just want God to just give them everything, have everything easily served on a plate without them needing to do a single thing. Now, at this point in time, a lot of us are probably thinking, ah, these Israelites, I'd never do something so silly as that. What idiots. But how often could we do the same thing? Complain God's doing nothing in our situation when God actually has actually provided everything we need in that situation, but we haven't taken what God has provided. Remember, these guys are saying, we've got no food, and they've got their livestock right next to them. This God who has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Second Peter 1.3 If there's a lesson to learn from Israel, 
Remember who your God is. Bring your needs before him in prayer. Trust that he cares, that he does provide. So how does God deal with these winters who are accusing him of leading him into death? In Exodus 16.4, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So again, God graciously provides. He provides their food for them. Now often it's been said that the Old Testament is the angry God and the New Testament is the, is the nice and the gracious God. But the Old Testament is full of grace and the New Testament is equally full of wrath as well. This is the God of grace that's shown here. These are the people saying, God, you're bringing out us here to kill or you would have killed us in Egypt. And they're whinging at him and God just graciously provides for them. But again we see another time attesting whether they will walk in my law or not. And we'll see how that plays out in a moment. So, Father, keep on complaining. God, what are you doing? And sometimes we could be tempted to ask the same question. Why would God let them get to a point where the basic needs for life, food and drink are missing? And the simple answer to that question is the same answer to why God does every single thing that he does is for his glory. Sadly, sometimes we only presume that something is for the glory of God as if it's pleasant, happy and nice. And we miss out on something, a way of seeing the, the goodness and the full spectrum of God's character. But in response to their grumble, in verse 6, God provides meat in them, for them in the evening, that they may know that I am the Lord, the one who brought you out of Egypt. Then in verse 7, provides the manner that says that they would wake up, they would see the glory of the Lord. That this would reveal his character, his care for them, his provision for them, his presence with them. In other words, this very same thing that they grumbled about was actually an opportunity to see God more clearly. And before they got tempted to think, oh well, there just happened to be meat turn up and, and this bread just happened to turn up. He told them to go out and they looked to the wilderness and they saw the cloud, the presence of God and the glory of God. They knew where it had come from. That's not to overlook the issue of the complaining. There we are. Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? The grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Now, in a literal sense, the people are directing their complaints towards Moses, but effectively, their grumbling in the big, realistic overview picture is that all grumbling is against God. The God who sovereignly created and rules, sustains all things. Every time we complain is a complaint that he is not doing his job that he is not providing for us, that he is not protecting us, that he is not demonstrating his presence with us. We see how that plays out at the beginning of the Bible. Adam and Eve are there in the garden. God's t- provided everything for their good. There's one thing they're told to avoid. 
Satan comes along, what about this? And they begin to question, has God good? Has he withheld something from me that is actually for my benefit? Or to give it a New Testament perspective from 1 Thessalonians 5.18, says, give thanks in all circumstances. Again, the Greek word for all means all. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So for all of you who are seeking diligently to know what God's will for your life is, there's a number of things in the Bible that tell you specifically what God's will is, and one of them is giving thanks in all circumstances. Complaining, while it's something we can naturally gravitate towards because we're very selfish by nature, is always a sign of a deeper spiritual problem, of a failure to understand rightly who our God is and to think of him rightly. But all that said, God graciously provides the quail in the evening, the manna in the morning, and the people were dependent on him on a daily basis. He provided just what they needed every single day. They would go out each morning and collect. The one who gathered a lot had enough. The one who gathered a little had enough. Everyone had enough. They were told not to get anything more. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning. It bred worms and stank and Moses was angry with them. Moses' anger is more than just their disobedience to a command. These people were keeping extra stocks on the off chance that God wasn't going to follow through on his promises. It was a failing to trust that God who said he would provide for them on a daily basis, we better stockpile. What if God doesn't care for us? What if God doesn't provide? And it grew maggots and stank. It's not the only act of disobedience we see with regards to the food that was supplied. They were told on the sixth day to collect a double portion so that they didn't have to collect any on the Sabbath. On the sixth day they were to boil it or to bake it so that it wouldn't go bad. Now for many people the the appearance of the Sabbath at this point in time seems a little bit unusual, out of place. They think, hang on, that's that's the fourth command given in Exodus chapter 20 and, and we'll get there but it seems to be uh, something that was instituted and understood at an earlier point in time. Um, And certainly this is the first time it gets referred to in the Bible. And this first reference gives a little bit of an insight to its meaning as well. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath of the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the seventh, there will be none. Now, this seventh day, this Sabbath day, wasn't just a day when the people rested. It was the day when God rested from providing the food. That was the reason why they didn't go out, is because God rested, therefore the people rested. Now, that's the connection between the Sabbath and God's Sabbath rest in creation is there, that it was initially God's day of rest, and because God rested, the people rested. But while it looks backward to creation, it also looks forward. It looks forward in the sense of the idea of entering into the rest of the promised land. It looks forward even further than that when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But it looks even further forward to that when you look through the book of Hebrews. It talks about entering into an everlasting rest. So it's a visual picture that, that has an ongoing looking forward to the fulfilment of the rest that is found in Jesus Christ. 
Now I realise when you raise something about Sabbath at this point in time, people got the big questions of what does this mean for us today? And because that's such a small part of the passage, and it's not the main point of the passage, if you have questions about that, we can talk about them afterwards. But the main point is they're told, collect double on the sixth, rest on the Sabbath. And despite the word from Moses, some people just kept on looking anyway. Some people still hadn't learned. They thought, I'm going to look. What if God doesn't continue to care for me? What if God doesn't continue to provide? When are they going to learn? The majority appear to have done what was instructed. And as they go and collect this manna, it seems just a strange thing. It says they didn't recognise what it was, that it was white, it was sweet like honey. And throughout Exodus we see God giving them some very good visual pictures. We've already seen that they were given the Passover to remind them how God passed over and the death of the firstborn. They were given the Feast of Unleavened Bread to remind them how of God, how he delivered them out of Egypt. And now he is giving them, providing for them on a daily basis, this manna with a taste of honey as a foretaste of the promise that he has given to them that I will take you into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Daily they have a reminder of God's promises, of his grace towards them despite their rebellion and disobedience. Every time we come together and we share in communion, I'm thankful for God's grace and for his patience with me. And I'm reminded of what he has done. And it too has a backward looking upon Christ and his death and also a forward looking. Remember how Paul speaks to the, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, you know, the death that he died as a substitute on our behalf, until he comes. So it's the reminder of what he has done for our salvation, but also the reminder that our Saviour is returning. So now they've seen God provide water and food, got them through the Red Sea. This is a God who can be trusted, right? Well, as we go to chapter 17 once again, they run out of water again. I wonder where we could find help with water. They move on towards Sinai, they get to Rephidim, no water, and they grumble again to Moses, which in reality is against God. Now, we've already seen both previous sections, there's been a test going on, where God has been testing the people. Now the tables are turned. The people quarrelled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So previously, God has been testing the people whether they would do what was right in his sight. Now they've become so proud and arrogant that they're testing God whether God measures up to doing what is right in their sight. Followed by their wonderful and familiar complaint, why did you bring us here to die? Wouldn't it be great to have Moses' job? You're doing all these things. You didn't want to do it in the first place. Everywhere you go, people are complaining. But the people just can't see beyond themselves, can they? They've decided this is what we need. It's not here. Our God's not worth following. He doesn't look after us. He doesn't provide for us. Again, Moses cries to God. Not specifically about the food. says, or the drink. What am I to do with these people? 
Many pastors have prayed that prayer. I haven't at Eastgate. Just other pastors have, apparently. And there's almost possibly this element of, God, look what you've done to me. I didn't want this gig. Look what they're doing. They're all, all rebelling. They're complaining all day long. Now they want to stone me. God says, take that staff I've given you. Behold, I will stand on there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So the complaining, complaining, complaining. God is graciously providing and providing and providing. This is our gracious and loving God. Although I would encourage you to read Numbers chapter 14 to 20 to see that over time, he's not so gracious towards it. Now, when he has first delivered them out of Egypt, they've been by nature used to being in slavery to Egypt. He's a bit more gracious. But as people come to a greater understanding and they've walked more closely with their God, he expects more from them. And same, I could say, for each one of us. But not only does God miraculously provide water from this rock, it tells us that his presence is there in the rock. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 even gives us further insight saying, I do not want you to be aware, brothers, that our fathers who were all under the cloud all passed through the Red Sea and all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink and they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So Paul gives us an insight looking back at these events saying that one who was sustaining them in the wilderness was Christ himself. And in a wonderful act of coordination, it just so happened that 1 Corinthians 10 was what our community group was leading a Bible study on Monday morning. It was also my turn to lead, so I thought, what a good connection. It's, the work's done. But God was, Christ was sustaining in the wilderness, and God still sustains his people with Christ. Your God does and will provide all your needs. We might have a very poor definition of what need is. I've got a wonderful ability to try and convince God of something as being an actual need that is really just a want. We live in a culture that's not content with this idea of our daily bread. A daily iPhone. And the big problem with the Israelites is they can't see beyond their perceived needs. Their whole life is wrapped around whether or not they get what they think they need or what they want particularly. To use the language of Paul in Philippians 3.19, their God was their belly. The thing that drove them was their having their personal desires and, and wants met. Because each one of us, the thing that we spend all our time consumed with, the thing that we see is the thing that we love most and is the thing that we perceive that we need most. These people kept seeing what they didn't have and they didn't see the God that they did have. But even the things that God did provide had a future and a greater significance. As God rescued a people out of slavery, he provided them with bread, with water, And both of these images are taken up by Jesus and applied to himself. I would encourage you to read the entirety of John chapter 6. We're not going to do that right now for time reasons, but it will give you a much fuller insight into this passage. But I'll just take a small part from it. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus says, you know, you think it's spectacular that God provided that, that sustains you on a daily basis. I am the living bread. Come to me. I am your deepest need. You will never hunger or thirst. Only a couple of chapters earlier in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, he takes the idea of the water again. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and I would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And you great, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will be coming to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus very plainly saying, the deepest need that you have is not in physical things. I provide your most deepest needs in every sense. You will neither hunger nor thirst. I am your needs. I am the living bread. I am the living water. But as we reflect upon what we've seen in Exodus, sometimes we might be embarrassed to see how much we actually have in common with the Israelites. Too often we are, do become unsatisfied. We grumble with God that we haven't got something that we think we should have or a particular need or want or desire is not met. Paul figured it out. Paul's words was, I have learnt how to be content in times of plenty and in times of lack. He understood that having Christ was everything. Material where you had much or where you had nothing didn't matter in the least. It is in that context he says, I have, I know that all things possible through Christ who strengthens me. I don't know why my mind went blank on that one for a moment there. He knew that our need is Christ. Jesus taught, give us today our daily bread. So if you want to identify our needs, that's what Jesus tells us that we should pray for as our needs. Our daily bread. If we have enough to get by day by day, God has provided for our needs in a physical sense. That should be the expectation. Now that being said, I presume I do, I presume all of you do. You've got food in your house that lasts more than just today, probably a few days, and then if you raise your freezer, depending on how much of a freezer hoarder you are, you might have months. Now that's not a bad thing. The point of this passage isn't that you must put yourself in such a position that all you have is just some bread and water for every single day. The point of the passage is to remember who your God is, to know what your deepest needs are, that your God is your provider, your protector. His presence is with you. Yet sadly, sometimes people think the whole principle is to make sure I'm living on God. I'm living by faith. I'm living day by day just for my daily bread. And they want everyone to know about how godly they are because they're doing that. 
the events that we've spoken about this morning get picked up in Psalm 95. Where in verse 6, God reminds them. Uh, in the psalm, he says, No, he is our God. We are the sheep of his pastures. Okay? You know, this is our God, this God who created all things. He is like our shepherd. He cares for us. He provides for us. He protects us. Then reflecting upon these events, he says in verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, as on the day at Messiah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had already seen my work. For 40 years I loathe that generation said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Now, in the book of Hebrews, picks up on this quote, not just applying it now just generally to Israel, but to the church. He says, but Christ is faithful over God's house and as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, which actually says in a ongoing sense, so what was written back in Psalm 95 is not ancient, just back to those people. He's continuing to say to the church today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Now, Paul picks up on the, the Exodus events in 1 Corinthians 10 and says, these things were written as an example and a warning for us on whom the fullness of the ages have come. We need to learn from these things. These are an example and a warning for us. These people had seen the wonders of God in a sense in which we probably will never see, yet they still reverted to a lack of trust in their God. So the writer of the Hebrew says, be careful you don't do the same thing. Do not, be, do not, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you know what God has provided for you, don't go back to your foolish way of thinking that God doesn't care, doesn't provide, and hasn't got his presence with you. Take note, learn from it. Remember his faithfulness. He will supply your needs. He says he will give you all things pertaining to life and godliness. And you know what? What's at stake is not just whether or not you feel good about it. His own reputation's at stake. You think he's going to let his reputation be scarred by not doing such things that he promised to do? He will. And just as God provided daily for the needs of the Israelites by providing them manna which had a taste of honey that gave them a glimpse of the rest to which he was going to bring them into, so also the New Testament authors tell us that we at our at our salvation receive the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of a seal of our salvation, preparing us for the inheritance that, that awaits us ahead. Our God too, not only has provided us our salvation, but he will lead us into that everlasting rest. Do not harden your hearts. Your God does protect. Your God does provide. His presence is within, within you. Do not harden your hearts and forget who your God is and forget his promises to you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm amongst probably many in this room who know how frequently we go back to the foolishness of some of our thinking. We forget your promises. We forget the way that you have even worked in our own life that we have visibly and tangibly seen. 
Lord, we thank you that we see here uh, the way in which you were slow to anger. How you uh, patiently bore with the people and you graciously provided for them. But Lord, we don't want to presume upon your grace. We want to be a people who don't harden our hearts. Who, rather than being our first result to, to complain and to complain to other people, that, Lord, that we would plea with you as the one who is able to do something about our situation, as the one who has promised to care for us, to provide for us, and that we would patiently wait for your timing and we would wait for you uh, to show your, your care, your provision and your presence with us. And we thank you that he who waits upon you will never be disappointed. And, Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, stand up as we sing together. Come thou fount of every blessing.